Hello, my name is Kristen Robinson. I'm the ministry coordinator here at King's Cross Church. You're listening to the podcast from King's Cross Church in Charleston, South Carolina. We are working our way through the entire Bible during 2023 in a sermon series called The Story. For more information about our church or to find resources related to the story, visit kingscross.org. Well, I don't think I introduced myself. If you don't know me, my name's Chip. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, if you were not here last week and you haven't already gone and listened to or watched the sermon uh, online or on whatever app you subscribe maybe to our podcast, I want to encourage you to go do that. And if you've been around for a while, I do not ask you to go back and listen to sermons that you missed very often. But last week we celebrated our 500th service as a church. And um, we spent some time at the beginning of that service just talking about and dreaming about and praying about what might it be like if rather than having 500 services by this time next year, we were gathering regularly with 500 people, Uh, not for the sake of, of, of bragging on numbers, but for the sake of the lives of the people who might be reached Um, if we were willing to be bold in what we were asking and praying for God to do in the next year. And so um, we just talked a little bit about wanting to see more marriages strengthened and more students giving their life to Christ and more children being excited about coming to church, more addictions being broken, more relationships being reconciled. We, we want to be, as a church, be able to give away more and more money to our partners in the city and across the world. And so I want you to hear my heart on that because I'm pretty serious about it as a goal um, that I want us to be thinking and praying about together. And so um, I, I don't want any of that to be misconstrued. So go back and check that sermon out if you haven't already heard it, because um, I, I think that we just want to believe the, the scriptures say God is able to do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine. Uh, and so what, what might it look like at our church and in our community if that were to happen. And so um, go back and and check that out uh, if you would. Okay, Um, we've been preaching our way through the Bible this year in a series called The Story, and we've done a couple of things to try to keep this fresh for you along the way. The big one is we've kind of broken this year-long series down into 10 smaller mini-series, if you will. We've called them chapters. But two weeks ago, we started chapter 9, which is called The Church. We only have one left. Um, So we started chapter 9 a couple weeks ago. We were looking at Acts 1 and 2, and we saw the birth of the church. We saw how Jesus gave the church a mission to reach the world with the gospel through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then last week, we were in Acts 15, and we saw how the church had started to grow, but when it did, church got messy. And so the church had to come together and to clarify a few things. They had to clarify the gospel. What does it mean to be saved? What do you have to do to be saved? And how do you live like a Christian once you are saved? And this week, what we're going to see is the results of those two things, the results of of these two realities of the Spirit coming and indwelling believers and leading the church on the mission that Jesus gave to her and the gospel being clarified and made central to everything that the church was doing. 
And so we're going to see what it looks like when the Spirit leads and the gospel is clear. What does it look like in in local churches together, but also what does it look like in the lives of the individual Christians that make up the church? So let's look at three things that are true of Christians and the church when the Spirit leads and when the gospel is clear. The first one is this, that diverse community is created. Diverse community is created. So when the Spirit leads and the gospel is clear, diverse community is created. In Acts chapter 16, the Apostle Paul and his uh, mission team, which seems to be not less than Paul, Timothy, Silas, and Luke, um, and probably it was more than that, but it seems to be not less than those four brothers. They, they arrive in a city called Philippi. We'll pick it up in verse 11 of Acts chapter 16. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. And we remained in this city some days. The first Sabbath day that they were there in Philippi, they went looking for a synagogue. Evidently, there wasn't one. And so they found the next best thing is a women's Bible study that was happening down by a river, and it was being led by a woman named Lydia. Verses 14 and 15. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. After she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And so they go to Lydia's house uh, to stay there. They're new to the city. And on their way to her house, they had this encounter with a slave girl who's possessed by a demon. And she starts following them around. Verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer where we... We were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Which kind of sounds encouraging, but that's not really the way that she means it. In verse 18, she kept doing this for many days. That after a while, and Paul, having become greatly annoyed, which I think is what would happen if a slave girl was following after you at work all the time, you know, just shouting out, this person is trying to sell you copiers, you know, like even if it's true, at some point it's enough, right? And so he gets greatly annoyed. He turns and says to this spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Now, this slave girl's owners don't like that because the girl can't make them money anymore because she's not possessed by a demon who can trick the people in the city and and kind of grab their hearts and their minds with these divinations that are not from the Lord. And so this girl's owners drag Paul and Silas to the town square. They accuse them falsely, and it results in the town magistrate ordering Paul and Silas to be beaten and thrown in jail. And so they do, I think, what we can all agree would be our natural reaction if we were falsely accused, drug into public, beaten with rods, and thrown in jail unjustly. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Because that would be your reaction too, right? The prisoners were listening to them. 
And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Because if you were a Roman prison guard and the people you were guarding escaped, the penalty was death. So he figures, I'm going to skip the torture, go straight to the death part and get this over with. But Paul, verse 28, cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself. We're all here. The jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. And they brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. This is the birth of the church at Philippi. Its core team consists of a pious, wealthy Macedonian woman who apparently is a successful fashion entrepreneur. She sells purple goods. That's a luxury fashion item. She evidently has houses in two cities, Thyatira and Philippi, and she must be pretty moral because though she is not Jewish, she has been accepted into these Jewish prayer circles. Then you have a demon-possessed slave girl whose days are consumed by being used as a tool by her owners to swindle the public, and a blue-collar Roman prison guard who history tells us the prison guard gig was one you got basically when you had served faithfully in the army and it was time for you to be discharged. It was kind of like a a retirement gig. They could not have been less alike. There is no reason for those three people to be in the same room, much less the same church, believing the same thing. No cultural reason. But when the Spirit leads and the gospel's clear, diverse community is created. Now, I know in our context, when we think of diversity, usually the first thing that leaps to our mind is racial diversity, and that is absolutely part of it. And let me say clearly and unambiguously, we would like to see more racial diversity at King's Cross. We would. We've tried to be intentional about this. It's why we've had multiple African-American brothers come and preach to you from our pulpit. It's why we've had outreach events and worship services with predominantly African-American churches that are up here on the Canehoy Peninsula. It's why we invite diverse speakers to come, not just uh, to Sundays, but to our KCY events and to our FCA events and to speak and do the devotional before our uh, meals that we host with the Philip Simmons football team. But I'll be honest with you, like it's going to be hard for our church to be more racially diverse than your relationships. Just is. We we want that, but it's just hard for our sanctuary to be more diverse than your dining room. And so when I say that where the spirit leads and the gospel's clear, diverse community is created, I do mean us, but I also mean you in your life. But Diversity isn't only 
racial diversity, though it is that. I mean, we see that in Acts 16. Lydia and the Roman jailer are not the same ethnicity. So, so we see that here. But we also see other kinds of diverse community being created in Acts 16. There's age diversity. You have two adults and a young girl. There's economic diversity. You have this fashion entrepreneur and a slave. We have family profile diversity. We have evidently two singles and then the head of a household. You see stage of life diversity. You have someone who's established in their career, and if you'll allow me to stretch it a little bit, this young girl who's just getting started in life. We have place of origin diversity. Lydia is not from Philippi. She's either has a seasonal home there or she's a transplant who's part of the donkey traffic problem on all the trails that bogs up Philippi and everybody who's Philippian by origin wishes all those people would just go back to Thyatira. Fair? Or Ohio, I don't know. Right? <laughs> ah, there we go. <laughs> so look, we think about these things. Right? We don't want to to just be a church that's filled with young professionals or families of school-aged children or retirees. We, we want all of that. We, we don't want to be a, a church that is just thinking about Christians or just thinking about non-Christians or just focused on new Christians. We want to see all of those. We don't want to cater what we do to wealthy people or solidly middle-class people or people who are trying to stave their way out of poverty, right? So by God's grace, it is hard when people ask me, well, what kind of people are at King's Cross? I'm like, well, we're, we're, we're fairly diverse to be a reasonably young church. We're not even 10 years old yet. A lot of churches our age are just packed full of college kids or they're packed full of like, we, and praise God for that. I mean, if you're in college, we love you. We're glad that you're here, but we don't only want you, right? We, we want by God's grace to see a more and more and more diverse community at King's Cross because we want to, to experience an increasingly diverse um, body here. We want you to experience increasingly diverse relationships in the places where you live, learn, work, and play every day. Because whether it's your life or our church, where the spirit leads and the gospel is clear, diverse community is created. And so we, we want to see that. It's both. And if for some reason, and I'll tell you, like if you push back against that, that is sin. And you just got to you got to confess that and put that down. I would encourage you this afternoon, go read Revelation 7. Because if you don't long for an increasingly diverse experience of God's image bearers, when you get to heaven, you're going to be real disappointed. Real disappointed. And, and so we just don't want that. We want to see diverse community created because that's what happens when the Spirit leads and the gospel is clear. Second, when the Spirit leads and the gospel is clear, cultural idols are confronted. Cultural idols are confronted. We can't look at this one in quite as much detail, but in Acts 17 to 19, 
what you see is that the Holy Spirit is working through the preaching of the gospel to confront cultural idols, and it's cultural idols of all different kinds. We see it in Acts 17. Paul's in Athens. We read this in verses 16 and 17. While Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Now, Athens prided itself on being kind of the philosophical center of the world. And so Paul is reasoning with people in different places, and some of the leading intellectuals of the city, they go get him, and they say, hey, why don't you come down to the Areopagus and talk? It's kind of like a philosophical town hall, and people come there, and we discuss different ideas, and we'd love to hear whatever it is that you have to say. Verse 22, Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you. And Paul literally confronts the false god idols of the Greek culture in Athens. And he says, you're, you're worshiping these gods, which are no gods at all. How about I proclaim to you the God that created the heavens and the earth and everything therein? So he preaches the gospel to them. And at the end of chapter 17, it says that some believed, some mocked, and some said, you know what? We'll keep listening if you'll keep talking. In chapter 18, he's in Corinth. And this time, it's the Jews who were upset. Verses 12 and 13. When Galileo was proconsul of Acacia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Now he's fighting against the idols of tradition and legalism. And he's having to convince people who think that they're religious, who think that they're saved, who think that they're right with God, that they've got a problem. Because they're not worshiping God, they're worshiping the things of God. They're worshiping their cultural traditions and their religious trappings. And their, what they really love is the way that they do things, not the God who told them to do it that way. Turn the page to Acts chapter 19. Paul's in Ephesus. Revival's breaking out. The gospel's being preached. People are being saved. They're turning from their idols. They're beginning to follow Jesus. And because of that, there's a riot. Verse 23, about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, which is what they called Christians before they called them Christians. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades, and he said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but also in almost all of Asia, this Paul is persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there's a danger, not only that this trade of ours might come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis might be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Now it's money. 
You want to watch idolatry surface quickly, go after people's money. That dude didn't care about Artemis. That was not his concern. His concern was selling the people stuff about Artemis. And Paul was compromising their business and their trade because people had no need for idols anymore. And now their economics were being attacked. It's one of the reasons why I would lovingly tell you that if you are watching on TV or you're listening to some program and some joker is talking about God and the primary thing that's being communicated is how you can buy the recordings of him or her talking about God, turn that junk off. Because they're not interested in talking to you about Jesus. They're interested in you buying their talk about Jesus. That's what's happening here. It's money, wealth, business, economics, trade, commerce. That's the idol that they're going after in Acts chapter 19. This is what the Spirit does. When the gospel is clear, the Holy Spirit, through the preaching of that gospel, the teaching, the reading, the studying of that gospel, is going to confront the idols of every culture. Because you can't serve both God and money, Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24. You can't love your family more than Jesus. Luke 14, 26. You can't follow Jesus and stay comfortable in your nice little night life where nothing ever has to change. Luke 9, 23. You can't love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and not sacrifice your time, talent, and treasure for his sake and for the sake of his church. Mark 10, 17 to 27. You can't do it. Not if you understand the gospel clearly. There will be idols in your heart that get confronted. So look, I don't know what your idols are. I know what mine are, and, and I'm trying to confront them. Okay, well, our hearts have them all. All of our hearts have them. So I don't know what yours are. But let me give you the greatest hits list, and you just see if some of this resonates a little bit with you. We were like the Casey Kasem top five, right? The old people laugh, including me, right? If you don't know who Casey Kasem is, I'm sorry. Money. Money's the goat. It's all-time number one. Tells you that life would be heaven if you just had a little bit more, and it warns you of the hell that will happen if you have a little bit less. You just need to serve money. Sex is a close runner-up, number two. Always wants a shot at the title. There's like a gazillion branches off the sex idolatry tree. Everything from porn to sexual identity and expression. You just pick somewhere in between. It grips our hearts. Ideology is another big one. Whatever ideology persuades you the most, it might be political, it might be economic, it might be social, there's some kind of ism. There's this ism that you think, man, if we could just get everybody to do that, to follow that, to believe that, to live like that, then you know we would just have uh, peace on earth, a rainbow over every house, everything would be great. If we could just get people to do that. Lifestyle is one we fight in Charleston a lot. It's probably in our top three. 
behind money and sex. Lifestyle idols say there's this specific way to experience life, to experience freedom, joy, pleasure, a specific way to work, a specific way to recreate. There's a way for me to be me and maximize my enjoyment of life. And I'll sacrifice anything I have to sacrifice. I'll endure anything I have to endure to either get or to hold on to this lifestyle that I'm chasing or that I'm living. And if I don't get it or if I lose it, it's hell on earth. Because I got to be me like this. Identity is the other one. Racial, ethnic, national. Idols that place our supreme identity in the randomness of your birth. Because you didn't pick your race or your ethnicity or your national origin. And so to find your supreme identity in that is an idol. Because your identity is supposed to be found in the one in whose image you're created and in the one who died that you might be recreated in his image. And so none of those are bad things. Tim Keller says they're good things made God things. There's good things that aren't supposed to be supreme things. But when parts of the creation eclipse the creator in your heart or in your mind or in your actions, that's idolatry. And so when the Spirit's leading and the gospel's clear, those cultural idols, those personal idols of your heart and of, of the hearts of churches and of entire cultures, they get confronted. That's just a natural byproduct of the Spirit leading and the gospel being clear. One more. Diverse communities created, cultural idols are confronted. And when the Spirit leads and the gospel is clear, surrendered lives become catalytic. Become catalytic. You know what I mean by catalyst? A catalyst is something that ignites other things. Catalyst is the thing that when you drop it in, the chemistry experiment takes off. It's the igniter. When the Spirit leads and the gospel is clear, surrendered lives become catalytic. I hope that you read through your devotional plan this week. If you um, are doing that, you know, like the first half of chapter 9 ended and so Pastor Josh has the second half of chapter 9 devotionals are on the table on your way out. Grab that. Um, it'd be a great time to jump in if you're not reading along with us because those are there and we start fresh tomorrow with the second part of uh, chapter 9 of the story. But if you're reading along, you'll probably notice that the last half of the book of Acts basically chronicles Paul's missionary journeys. If you don't know very much about Paul, that might make sense. So what you think is, well, this guy, Paul, he's one of the big stars of the Bible. You hear about him a lot. And, uh, you know, it makes sense that he would be out on these missionary journeys. But not if you knew Paul, because Paul was violently opposed to followers of Jesus. Paul got lists and hunted down Christians door to door, dragged them out of their homes, accused them of blasphemy, and oversaw their being stoned to death for it. So for Paul to be a missionary, but see what happened was in Acts chapter 9, Paul got converted. He's radically converted to faith in Christ. 
And what happens after that is he spends the whole rest of his life living in response to the grace that he had already received so freely from God. Acts 20, 18 to 24, Paul's saying goodbye to some of his friends in Ephesus. He, he knows he's probably never going to see him again. He's heading off to prison. And Luke records this. He says, when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. By the way, if you are not yet a Christian and you're considering the claims of Christianity and maybe um, somewhere along the line you have misunderstood the gospel and you think that if you become a Christian, tears and trials will be behind you, that is not the case. Now, in eternity, there won't be tears and there won't be trials and there won't be death and there won't be suffering. But in this life, you're still going to experience those things. Jesus will be with you in them, but he may not save you from them this side of eternity. Verse 20, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul is totally surrendered. He will go wherever God tells him to go. He's going to do whatever God tells him to do. And whatever happens, happens. So be it. God be praised. And God is going to take Paul's totally surrendered life. And he is going to use it as a catalytic agent of change to start a gospel movement whose roots are in an empty tomb in Jerusalem, but whose fruit is going to cover the entire world. The fruit is included in this service right now that we're in, where we're reading about these things, about his life and about what he taught. Fruit that includes Eutychus being raised from the dead in Acts 20. It includes Paul's opportunity to, to witness about the faithfulness of Christ before a Roman tribunal in Acts 22, a governor in Acts 23, and a king in Acts 25. Fruit that includes 276 lives saved in Acts 27. And I don't mean saved spiritually, I mean literally saved from death in Acts 27. Churches planted in Galatia and Ephesus, Philippi, Colossians, Corinth, Crete, Thessalonica. Countless churches encouraged because he stopped by all of them when he's on this missionary, three different missionary journeys that he went on. Dozens of pastors equipped and sent out 13 books of the Bible written. Paul's life was catalytic. But here's the thing. If you are a Christian, the same spirit who indwelled, equipped, and empowered Paul is in you. The same spirit who took Paul's surrendered life and made it catalytic, could take your surrendered life and make it catalytic too. 
How might God use you if you were totally surrendered to him? If your hands were just open, if you were willing to say yes to whatever he asked you to do, what might he do if more of what's in your hand you were just willing to take and put in his? If your yes was on the table and you just said, you know what? I am going to be more generous financially. I'm going to trust the Lord with that. I, I am going to give up more of my time. Time may be the most precious commodity I have. And I'm just going to be willing to serve. I'm going to be willing to be engaged in people's lives. I'm going to be willing to commit to Sunday mornings, commit to a group. I'm going to open up my hands on my time because God is worthy of it. And I'm going to trust him with it. If you just said yes to giving him your talents, if you just said, you know what, man, there's a, there's a few things I'm pretty good at. And I, I, I'm not bragging. I'm just like, I, I'm pretty good at this. I'm going to do this with some intentionality, with my eyes on the kingdom. I'm going to do it in a way that honors God, in a way that impacts people. Like Whatever time, talent, treasure you have. What if God wanted to use your life to spark catalytic change? Maybe in your family. That the generational patterns of dysfunction and sin and addiction and brokenness that came before you, they stop with you. They do not go beyond you. And your life is the one that your children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren look back on and they know nothing of that mess that came before you. Because the legacy you pass on is different. What if he wanted to use you to spark change in your school? or on your team, or in your friend group. You just said, you know what? I'm not talking like that. I'm not behaving like that. I'm just, we are not going to do these things, not when I'm around. And if things were different, if you wanted to use you in your neighborhood, that, you know, just the people in your little cul-de-sac know each other's names and care for each other, and pray for each other, and fellowship with each other. See each other maybe at church on Sunday morning. What if God wanted to use your company's resources to be agents of catalytic change in your industry or in our community? In years from now, people would look back and say, you know what, it wasn't all about profit to them. They made a difference in our city. They made a difference in our industry. What might happen? I say this without, without bragging in any way whatsoever. I'm just, as a practical example, Kristen and I said yes to ministry in 2009. We walked away from the marketplace and into vocational ministry, not knowing what might happen. We didn't go into ministry planning to plant a church. King's Cross is right around the corner from 100 baptisms. We didn't know that was going to happen. We just felt like God was calling us to do something different, and we said yes. You know that Josh and Christy said yes to helping us plant King's Cross. They said yes to King's Cross before I made Josh a job offer. 
They just trusted the Lord. So we believe in this. This is what we're going to do. And we trust the Lord to take care of us. There were about 40 men and women from the church at Life Park and First Baptist Mount Pleasant that said yes to help us start the church with zero idea if it was going to work. None. I've never been a lead pastor before. They just stepped out in faith and said, you know what? We'll be a part of something. You know, that the reason we're sitting in this building is because in 2018 and 19, there was a whole bunch of people at King's Cross that gave $1.1 million above and beyond their normal tithe and offering in a two-year period of time so we could have a home. Because in our culture, churches are still associated with places. We might not need a building if we were in northern India, but east of the Cooper, you need one. They said, you know what, we're... We're willing to sacrifice for the sake of the mission. Some of you are here. Some of you are saved because there's a family member, a friend, a coworker, a neighbor who was willing to step into awkwardness and anxiety and invite you to church. And they were worried when they did it because they were worried that you might think they're one of these Jesus freaks or maybe you were saying something about their life or what if you said no? It was awkward for them but they did it. Or maybe they shared the gospel with you and they fumbled around a little bit and they are sure that they completely blew it, but that's how God spoke to you for the first time. And now your eternity is different because of that. We're all here because God the Father sacrificed his only son who then sacrificed his life that we might come to a place of repentance and faith and receive forgiveness and be granted eternal life. Surrender and sacrifice is an integral part of who we are. There's no worship without sacrifice. There's no growth without sacrifice. You will not grow spiritually if you are not surrendered to the Lord and making active, tangible sacrifices in your life. There's no such thing as being partially surrendered. Jesus is either Lord or he's not. So what might God be pressing in on your heart? What might he be calling you to surrender? What might he want to use in your life if you just open your hands up on it? For some of you, it might be time. You just need to be committed. You need to be committed to being here on Sunday mornings, committed to being in a small group, committed to serving. You just need to say, he is worthy of my time. And see how he might use your life. Some of you need to be more committed financially. Or you need to surrender more, perhaps, of your finances. You don't have a capacity problem. You don't have a financial capacity issue. You're just not completely convinced that the greatest investment you can possibly make is in the kingdom of God. And you need to trust him. Some of you need to surrender your lives. Maybe for the first time. You're not a Christian yet. You just need to surrender your skepticism, surrender your doubt, surrender your questions. You just need to receive the grace of God. We'd love to have a conversation with you about that, what it looks like for you to take your next step in surrendering your life because God has a plan for it. Some of you have already done that, but you know that God is calling you to go deeper. You need to say yes to being in the leadership position at King's Cross. Maybe you're being challenged to be in. 
Some of you, maybe God's pressing in for you to consider vocational ministry and it doesn't make complete sense to you. You're not sure about the timing. You don't really know what that would look like. You just need to open your hands and surrender your life. God may be calling some of you to go overseas to a country you've never been to, to a place with a language that you don't speak yet because you've got more gospel in you than everybody in that city he's going to send you to combined. And he wants to use you to be a catalytic agent of change for the gospel. If you're just willing to surrender and to say, yes, it's not the same for everyone, but it does exist for everyone. And this is what we want to see. This is what we should expect to see. As a faith family, we should expect to see these things. Diverse community. We should expect to see idols being torn down. We should expect to see catalytic change happening. You should long for that individually. Because where the Spirit leads and the gospel is clear, that's what we see. When lives and churches are surrendered, these are the things that are created. Let's pray and ask God that we might see it and experience it in our lives and in our church. Father, we are astounded sometimes when we consider what's happening in the church in the book of Acts. And yet we believe that the same spirit who was initiating those things is working in our church. Jesus was the same Lord of those churches as he is of this church. You're the same God who did those things then. You are doing these things now. So we long to see these things. We rejoice in the diversity of our church and our relationships and our lives, but we want more. We want, we want our, our lives and our churches to look more and more like heaven. Would you give us a taste of it here? before we're with you there. We want the idols of our hearts and of our city, of our church, to be shattered by the gospel. Would you uproot them, destroy them by the power of your spirit, that we might be conformed more and more into the image of Christ. We might find more joy in him than in these things of the world. We want to be a people and a church that are catalysts for the gospel. Not only when we gather, but this afternoon and through the week as we scatter around the city. In our workplaces, in our homes, our schools, in our neighborhoods. We want to be on mission for you because we just believe that this is what the Spirit does. Would you help us to experience more and more and more of this? In Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. My name's Chip. I'm the lead pastor here at King's Cross Church. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We hope that you're growing in the gospel as we work our way through the story. Take a moment to subscribe and you'll get each week's episode automatically. May the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.